we've swung very heavily towards putting Bitcoin's asset sort of on this pedestal, right? That Bitcoin is a sort of this, you know, asset that does not compete with anything, that it has these sort of invincible qualities. And I think that what we might find is that we've over-optimized for that. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's sportsbet.io. The very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. 
which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. You have a notepad. I feel like it's reasonable. I'm the, you know, there's got to be equal equality here. This is to keep notes as I ask you things and <laughs> maybe I'll ask you further things. That's true. Well, this does seem to be a question and answer format. Okay. You know we started. <sighs> God damn it. <laughs> How are you, man? Have we? Yes, we have. Ugh, We're not okay. going to do that again. How are you, Rizzo? I am good, host of podcast. Guest of podcast. It's great to have you again. How many times, how many Rizzo's have we done? Is this in this fourth? The third or fourth? Fourth. We did one remote, didn't we? Uh, this is the fourth, fourth. that we've done. Uh, we're all really liking it every time you write a new article. Because okay. they're, they're fucking awesome. Thank you. I think I you are that. approaching subjects that other people aren't and going into a level of depth, which is super interesting. It makes people think. Makes people unhappy, that's for sure. Yeah, that's that's a real, that's a thing. But like they say, if you are pissing people off, you're doing something right. Mm. We have that continual problem. Somebody I had probably eight emails this week complaining about the Scott Horton show. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ranging from, why didn't you fact check him live? He's a lunatic, Russian apologist. Uh, and the, the reply to every person is the same, is that if I'd have brought somebody whose views were counter mm. to Scott's, mm. I would have had eight emails saying, why have you got that person on? Mm. Why are you a West apologist? So we always say... We will talk to anyone. We not. We have no bias. Mm. Well, not anyone, but you know. And it's clearly not anyone. Like that's that's not clearly. <laughs> well, we had we had Laura Luma. Yeah, but it's it's up to. I think what it is is, it's up to the get the the listener to listen to what you say, mm. do their own fact checking, interpret. It's it really offloading the liability here onto the. Well, no, no, no. I don't think so. No, I think we have a responsibility with it, but mm. I think it's important for the listener to uh, check their own bias and understand there's a difference between facts, opinions, and interpretations. So with someone like Scott Horton, if you think he's spouting shit, it's most likely that you have a different interpretation or you have a different an opinion, different opinion, but you should go and fact check what he said and see mm. if there's any truth to it. Mm. And usually... The needles thread through the middle somewhere. Mm. Yeah, researching things is good. <clears throat> People should do that more often. I agree. So who are you pissing off right now? Uh, well, that's this, a good question. This yeah. one isn't out yet. No, this piece is not out yet, but it's been heavily workshopped with, with a lot of people. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, uh, you sent us two articles. I did, yes. But straight away when you talked to me about this one, I was like, I definitely mm. want to make this show because I think it's super interesting. Mm. We are going to discuss the world of Bitcoin maximalists. Right. Uh, why, what was the inspiration to do this? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I think that it's become pretty clear that, you know, people see a future where Bitcoin is very successful, right, by and large. Um, that it seems to be a unanimous opinion in Bitcoin. But when you actually drill people on specifics of what that future entails, uh, you get a varying amount of answers. So, you know, I'd say most of our current messaging as Bitcoiners is about, 
how the current financial system is unsustainable and failing. Um, but uh, what's interesting is we haven't really directed those questions inward, right? So do we have the same confidence about Bitcoin's success into the future? And I think the more that I asked that question, the more that I found that there was divergent opinions, right? So, you know, my argument was really to try to figure out, okay, do we, you know, how confident are we that Bitcoin will continue to work in the future? Obviously, there are questions about its design, right? The people who are the most experts about this subject seem to have the most questions. So this article was really trying to kind of envision, look, there's going to be a post-2140 world where Bitcoin is no longer producing and issuing new Bitcoin. And uh, there are seemingly many opinions about how Bitcoin gets and overcomes that obstacle, or even that it is an obstacle, right? So I think that was just something that, you know, I, I made the joke earlier that I'm a, I'm a bit of an anti-confidence merchant. But when I see confidence, like, it makes me uneasy, right? And I think that current Bitcoiners today have this idea that Bitcoin is inevitable and that it will surely succeed without any real effort on their part, right? And that is very much a sentiment that runs in contrast to my experience with the developers and people who've been working longest on Bitcoin. And so this piece was a bit of an exploration of why that appears to be the current status quo. Do you think people are confusing what they want to happen with the, re the potential that it will happen? I think that people respond to confidence and they easily kind of fall for, for certain types of stories. So a phrase that I've been workshopping recently is the fiat rapture, right? There's a lot of people I think at Bitcoin right now who are promising this cataclysmic end to the financial system that currently exists. And they're saying that Bitcoin is some sort of solution to that, right? Uh, and what I think what's interesting is I always try to ask like an opposite question, you know, if I'm given some piece of information. And that story really maps pretty heavily to a lot of religions, right? So a lot of religions will promise some future afterlife and cataclysm, right? This is the rapture, right? So if you're familiar with Christianity, uh, you know, I'm a Catholic, right? <laughs> the world, in my worldview, it should be that the world will end imminently and that there'll be some great reset to which I will benefit. Uh, sorry for using that term that's, uh, you know, politically charged. But uh, I think the fact remains, right, that, that Bitcoiners are by and large sort of falling into the pattern of like propagating this fable that, you know, there will be some, there needs to be some sort of end to the current system, and then we will somehow prosper from that. And I think that there's a couple problems with that. Like one, it distracts us from actually asking meaningful questions about Bitcoin and actually moving that system forward. And it creates an environment where people are very complacent about improving that system in a way that it actually can be competitive with the current system. So I find it to be an odd thing that would become so accepting of that story because it, it requires us to believe very negative things will occur eminently and that somehow we will benefit it. And in other scenarios, we just don't accept that story. So an example of like, I'm not, you know, I mentioned that I'm Catholic, I'm Catholic by birth, but I'm not religious, right? I don't currently think that there will be a rapture. Uh, and I don't think we need there to be a fiat rapture. I don't think that needs to occur. Uh, and I think that those stories can be problematic because ultimately Bitcoin, this is sort of another driving piece, right? Bitcoin is ultimately a consensus system, right? People have to run nodes and they have to accept software and they have to make changes to Bitcoin. They have to preserve the system. Uh, so ultimately our thoughts and opinions about Bitcoin actually do matter eventually, I think. We're gonna we're gonna need less Bitcoin, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. I mean, I don't, you know. You know what I'm thinking, aren't you, Danny? What are you thinking? Well, with regards to what the- The last interview. Yeah because uh, CK thinks in the next decade we hyper-Bitcoinize. 
everything else is over. Yeah. My question for that really is, is that there's definitely a change in the the kind of reserve currencies of the world. There is a fracturing dollar. Mm. Um, there is a rising yuan. There's a rising Bitcoin. Mm. Um, there is risks with the dollar, but there's every chance it just the powers that be that make these decisions get together and they rethink the financial world, they re-monetize the world, they, I don't know what they do, but the dollar crashes and then the dollar just exists again. Mm -hmm. Right. We carry on. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, right. There's every chance that This happens. is sort of the thing with the math has to add up. And like my counter question to that has been like, well, there is no equation that sums up the universe or why it mathematically exists. And in fact, the universe is infinitely expanding. So in fact, the, inter the universe actually bears more of resemblance to the fiat economy. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not buying that one. <laughs> I don't the, know. The universe may be infinite already, mm -hmm. not just infinitely right. expanding. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying we accept these sort of things, right? So going back to the article that I put out for Forbes, you know, it's basically about a divergence in the vision for the future of Bitcoin, right? And I think that what I wanted to put out and I wanted to express is that our opinions about Bitcoin have changed pretty radically over time. They've been shaped by certain assumptions and those assumptions, like some of them have not turned out to be true, right? If we accept the framing that Bitcoin is the only most important cryptocurrency, whichever you know flavor you want of that, um, there have been differing views on that. They have changed pretty radically, and I don't think that there's been a good kind of assessment of how that change has occurred. So that is what I tried to put together, right? Bitcoin is a phenomenon. We're all coming to this technology without, you know, m you know, much that helps us with it, right? This is a new thing that has never existed before in all of humanity. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you look at the early days of Bitcoin, there was a lot of, you know, assumptions about it that turned out to be incorrect. And I think it helps to keep that in perspective because I think that we're likely finding ourselves in a period where, you know, we're likely making other assumptions <laughs> that, that, well, if not incorrect, they don't need to be correct, right? Those things don't need to be correct. So what are these two different divergent forms of Bitcoin maximalism? Mm. Okay, so just to go back to kind of reset the observations, right? So developers are coming to Bitcoin, they're coming to Bitcoin fresh, and they're just kind of looking at the code, right? Uh, and one of the things that's pretty Im immediately obvious is, is the subsidy of Bitcoin declines to zero, right? Because we want 21 million Bitcoins, the, <laughs> eventually Bitcoin stop being produced by the protocol, right? So that's kind of assumption one. So assumption two becomes that, you know, as Bitcoin continues to evolve, other people start producing other cryptocurrencies. So developers need to have some sort of stance on like what is happening here and to explain this phenomenon. And so I think initially, as they see this emergence of altcoins, they begin to assume that a couple things. One, that there are useful features on these other chains. And then two, that these other chains are competing for transaction demand with Bitcoin. There's some sort of competitive relationship here. So again, not that we currently believe that, but this was the initial assumption. So really Bitcoin maximalism like 1.0, you sort of have this original idea that kind of takes these two ideas and it makes a new idea with them, right? So in the original Bitcoin maximalism, you have this idea that Bitcoin will be a platform for all kinds of blockchains, all, like all kinds of cryptocurrencies, right? You have this idea that on top of Bitcoin, there'll be many side chains, many types of assets, uh, and you'll be able to use Bitcoin in all these different ways, right? So... Um, and again, you have to kind of trace that back to the assumptions, right? So they're, they're making assumptions about the state of the technology, and then they're designing a solution. So that solution tells us something about the assumptions. So why would you envision a state in which there are many blockchains running on top of Bitcoin 
unless you are doing that to solve some sort of problem, right? So you, you kind of take these two things and you kind of look at them and you can say the, 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 the outcome is equal to this input, right? And the input is they're assuming this problems and the output is this idea that you would build Bitcoin as a platform, right? That not only is Bitcoin have a fixed money supply, monetary supply and a you know, finite asset supply, but it's also a platform. And this is an intrinsically valuable component of Bitcoin that we need to unlock to reach this future state, right? So in vision one, you have this idea that Bitcoin will compete with and assimilate these other markets. So as these other markets and other features become valuable, Bitcoin will compete against these platforms and subsume them, right? Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin in this case becomes a platform, is something that you build on top of. What you should notice in describing this is also that this describes a lot of other cryptocurrencies, right? And I think where this article was hard for me because I wrote it in a bunch of different ways because I think you can explain the subject in a lot of different ways. And one of the other interesting things, in addition to looking at it as there's current Bitcoin maximalism and, and old Bitcoin maximalism, there's also the cryptocurrency world sort of inherits a lot of these original assumptions about Bitcoin. So the way that I kind of track it is you sort of kind of go back to the original state, right? There's Satoshi, he makes this new thing. Out of this new thing come assumptions, out of these assumptions come solutions, and then over time we have this divergence of people who still carry on these assumptions or people who have assumed new things, right? So I think the argument here is that, just to distill it, you know, the original version of Bitcoin maximalism was very much based on this idea that Bitcoin was or needed to be competitive with these other markets, it needed to assimilate these other markets, and you know, uh, ultimately that is not the current, the current version of Bitcoin maximalism that we have today, obviously, because I'm sure nobody on your show recently has come and said anything remotely similar to that, right? Uh, today, we sort of have this idea that, you know, uh, monetary maximalism, I will call it, which is that, you know, Bitcoin is intrinsically valuable. It doesn't compete with any other asset in the world. It's intrinsically valuable. Uh, and not only that, because Bitcoin is intrinsically valuable, block space, the network is in intrinsically valuable, right? So you're making this assumption now that, or this original state, Bitcoin competed against all these other things and it was destined to outcompete them. And that has changed to Bitcoin does not compete with these other things at all. It will never compete with these other things because it has this inherent demand. It has this special quality, right? But it, but it does compete because you make a choice between using Bitcoin or gold or fiat. So it does compete. So this is this where is where it becomes interesting, and the piece is sort of divided on. Um, you know, look, something that's unique about Bitcoin is it is an asset and a network. And the asset is the network. <laughs> so this was a bit of an exercise into describing there, there seems to be a large change in the movement towards talking about describing and the evangelizing about the asset of Bitcoin. But then there is the network. And these two things are synergistic, right? You cannot have a world in which Bitcoin asset is successful where the network is not successful, which means the network does not operate in an economically viable way. It does not have uh, a means by which it continues to operate. Uh, and so you sort of have this question of, you know, okay, if we are on a spectrum where these two things need to exist, have we gone too far into talking only about the asset? And are we under discussing the network and how that network will evolve? And that's the assertion, I think. What, what would you define as success for the asset? And what would you define as success for the network. Separately. Well, this is what's interesting is I think you have this kind of meta idea, and this is kind of maybe going back into how the different cryptocurrencies look at it, that that like we're criticizing the current fiat system because it's unsustainable. That's the claim that literally everybody who's coming on here is making, right? Is the current financial system is unsustainable. Uh, but then what is what is it that makes Bitcoin sustainable? 
And then you have this idea that Bitcoin needs to be economically viable. That's the only way I've found to describe it. It's very confusing to me why this would, this, how to phrase this. But it's this idea that after we stop producing, the protocol stops producing Bitcoin, Bitcoin needs to continue. <laughs> and someone needs to continue operating, which means the incentives need to hold up under that model, right? They, there needs to be people who still mine Bitcoin. There needs to be people who pay to send transactions. Uh, and ultimately, the system needs to continue into the future. Um, so again, this was sort of an exploration of that uncertainty. And I think what you're starting to find is that the people who are really excited about the asset are starting to say things that people who used to be very excited about the network are kind of saying like, well, hey, that's, that's weird that you're saying that now because we've never thought that before. Again, I'm not trying to say that one of these sides is correct yeah. or one of these sides is wrong. I'm just saying they're starting to diverge. So a good example would be um, some of the people in the monetary maximalist camp like, no longer think that there needs to be very high fees on Bitcoin that contradicts and starts to unravel a lot of the assumptions the developers have historically made because the developers are assuming that fees need to be high because they're assuming that mining equals security. And they're assuming that if it costs a low amount to censor transactions, the people will try to do so. Because again, the sort of network maximalist developer type people, they assume that Bitcoin is always under threat. They assume that it is constantly a network that is, that is capable of being subverted. And the asset people seem to think the opposite. They seem to think Bitcoin is this indomitable force <laughs> that can never be stopped, right? So you have a very drastic difference in sentiment, right? One group believes that Bitcoin is inevitable and invincible on this level that, that no other asset has been. And this other group sort of says, you know, Bitcoin is essentially always under threat. And at any minute, you know, we need to be constantly on guard for some attack, right? And so those two groups are going to have different assumptions. They're going to have different attitudes because they inherently believe fundamentally very different things like about the network itself. I think there are people who are in both camps. Though. I believe there are people sure. who think Bitcoin is inevitable, but it isn't invincible. Right. So I said, so I but, think this... But, but sorry, just yeah. to add to that, but I do think some of the people who think it's inevitable are hyperbolic and don't spend enough time considering the threats right. or what will happen. So the one, the one thing I just discussed with CK is, sorry, Danny, you're going to have to put these sequentially out, is that he talks about Bitcoin's inevitability it's by, and it being mm. binary. It either becomes the global standard for money or it fails and dies. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, no, I, I don't see it binary. It may never become the global standard for money, but it may be a tool that is useful for people. It may have a role similar to gold. It may be a network whereby you use it to transfer value, but it, it isn't the global standard for money. I, I don't know, but I don't well, think it's Well, this is the binary. thing is I think, that, I think the temptation of us as humans is to apply narratives to Bitcoin. So of one course. of the things that, you know, look, I've, I've been an, a journalist in here since 2013, and one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is you're yeah, basically this, our only journalist. So you, maybe you and Aaron Van Weyden. Yeah, yes, Aaron is very talented and uh, looking forward to his future work. But you know, the way that these cycles develop, what happens is the only thing we can say about Bitcoin is it's going up in value over time, right? Uh, but you know, when you get into these sort of cycles, um, we sort of start serving these narratives and building these narratives around Bitcoin, and then we start thinking as humans that these narratives are important for Bitcoin. Are they? Because it seems to be that these past cycles, people have built entirely na entire narratives around Bitcoin that no longer exist or no longer useful and that people no longer believe. So then is that also true of the current narratives we're spinning? So I think with, again, just to go back to what you were saying about, I think there are people in both camps. I think this article was really just an attempt to, I think what's been frustrating and people are reading it is I think nobody really fits into one camp or the other. But I'm trying to describe here as a difference in biases. 
that essentially there are, if if Bitcoin is a union of these two things, you can sort of see that if you tilt one way, you end, you end up with this sort of assumption suite. And if you tilt this other way, you end up with these other assumptions, right? And I think that what is helpful in that in that is that we can start to tease out some of these things. So to your point about what is ult- Bitcoin's ultimate destiny, Bitcoin only has to be economically viable. It only has to continue. It does not really need our narratives. It doesn't really need us, you know, making any sort of thing about it. It needs to, it needs to have enough demand and even use <laughs> like to continue in the future for the people to continue operating it because it is a decentralized system ultimately, right? So would it, do you think it'd be fair to say that a fair position would be is actually we don't really know what it's going to be. We can only ha- decide what it is right now based on how people use it and what it will be can totally change because it's this organic beast that people adapt to or it adapts to environments. Mm. And the reason I would bring that up is I do not believe whatever Satoshi's intentions were that he could foresee what mining would become oh, and yeah, certainly would not sure. foresee it become something where it's become been part of stabilizing mm. a grid. Yeah, how funny second tweet, uh, looking at the externalities of proof of work and wondering how to reduce CO2 emissions. <laughs> you know, uh, this, is, this is his less popular tweet to running Bitcoin, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, I think mining is an excellent example of, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot lately is Bitcoin is just, you know, uh, it's 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 a network that grows over time, and it has effects that we can all. You, we have it has effects at today's scale we just like couldn't have envisioned in the past, right? And that has a dramatic effect on how we're thinking about the development of Bitcoin and the continuance of Bitcoin. Um, but again, I think like what I've been trying to point out here is that the we've swung very heavily towards you know to um, you know putting Bitcoin's asset sort of on this pedestal, right? That Bitcoin is a sort of this you know, asset that does not compete with anything, that it has these sort of invincible qualities. And I think that what we might find is that we've over-optimized for that, right? Because ultimately we can't live in a world where, like, look, uh, every Bitcoiner right now spends cash and they save in Bitcoin. There's no future state of the Bitcoin network where that's the behavior of the people using it. <laughs> that isn't that literally because you need the network to continue, and people will need to be incentivized to do that. Well, so then you say, okay, well, you know, uh, we have the financial privilege in the West; we can rely on these financial systems. And then there's these, you know, international people who will have to use transactions. Okay, well, now these international people are living on your network, where you're just this weird rent seeker. So I don't know. Some of these problems start to become confusing to me, and I like, and this is why I'm trying to present them and doing a very bad job. No, you're doing a brilliant job. <laughs> Honestly, you're one of my favorite people mm. to interview. Can I joke about how bad I think I'm doing in this interview? You, that, that would help me. You a can lot. continually yeah. do it, and I will continually say how mm. well you're doing. I like would welcome, yeah, the backlash for. Like when Danny's like, "Shall we get Rizzo on?" I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" Mm, like fine. every time, every yeah. time, because you bring completely new subjects and completely new questions, and you do what a journalist does. Which is challenge people, mm. which is, which is what is literally the role of a journalist. And we don't have, we don't have a plethora of journalists in Bitcoin. We have, we have a plethora of cheerleaders. Right. Yeah. The confidence. The confidence game. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I I think we should still ask meaningful questions about Bitcoin because you know, look, if our main claim is that the current fiat system is unsustainable, then <laughs> to me, if I was going to make that claim. I would want to be very sure that the Bitcoin network is sustainable. And look, I think there are people who have good theses on this, right? And I'm saying, uh, I'm not trying to say that either group is, as I said before, it's, I'm trying to divide these people between who are like the technologists who are focused on the network and the economists who are kind of focused on the asset, right? I'm not saying that one of them is right or wrong. I'm saying that they're divergent right now. So I'll give, an ex- I'll give another example, right? Some people are very happy that Bitcoin right now, the fees are low. 
And they're saying that there might be a future where Bitcoin fees are always low. And because they're saying that mining might not really be security, maybe we only need mining to distribute the coins. And maybe in the future, people will think Bitcoin's so valuable and the Bitcoiners will be so rich that they'll just altruistically mine in the future. And look, maybe that is the future state of Bitcoin. Maybe that is what happens, but that is not the reality future of the network that the developers are currently assuming today. So if we do think that, if that is what we do think, then we should just say that that is, <laughs> that is the future we're assuming, and we should try to engineer or optimize for that environment. Right? There's a lot of people who are working on, on technology solutions that don't assume that. They assume that fees will be high. They assume that we will need to allow and build other top-level networks in order to make Bitcoin more usable for people. Uh, and those are the kinds of things they work, they're working on, and they will need changes to the, likely need changes to the base layer network to accommodate that. Right? So that requires a, a, an environment in which we are discussing how to improve Bitcoin as a network and improving Bitcoin as a network. Right? And I think that uh, the only thing I would say to the people in the asset camp is I think that they, you know, some of these things that we've encouraged is that we've encouraged this bias towards inaction through evangelizing for the asset in the way that we have and describing it in the way we have. But isn't, isn't this all playing out as it should? And do we actually need to worry right now? Ha, ha, no, for well, sure. Like, yeah. I'm thinking, has, has the uh, emissions uh, schedule been designed in a way that we can make these decisions later down the line as and when is required to react to how it is used? Uh, I, what's, what's the size of the, uh, the dollar value of the block reward right now? $250,000. $250,000. What was it four years ago when we were at? Yeah, much less, probably much less. like 50, yeah. And so when we go to 3.75... Right, but there's very there's some very interesting criticism of this this theory, right, is that the asset will just keep going up in value and that will increase the dollar value of the subsidy. But so, you know, Paul Stork, who is somebody who's a bit of a contrarian in the industry who's been kind of, you know, pushed aside, one of the models that he's been putting out is that, look, if you extrapolate Bitcoin doubling every cycle, there's still a point in which there isn't enough economic activity in the world to account for Bitcoin continuing to double. And I'm not saying that his criticism you, 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 is valid. Let, let, let me just... Sorry, just let me finish because mm -hmm. I know where you're going with this. Sure. What I'm saying is there's two aspects to that. There is the block subsidy, which is going up or doubling. Mm -hmm. And then there is the amount that's coming in fees, which maybe is going up, was maybe representing a higher portion. Well, the fees are definitely not as high as they used to be, the fee revenue. The total fee revenue or the amount in terms of sats? I'm not 100% sure on that. But the, the point being is Every four years, we're going to get a marker. And it may be in four years' time, it's 3.75 Bitcoin, and it's $400,000 right, block, right. and 40000 of that is fees, or 20000 But we're going to have a curve. Mm -hmm. We're essentially going to have a curve. We're going to have a curve on block reward, and we're going to have a curve on fees. Mm -hmm. And it may be a case of fees never catch up. But it may be a case during that period, Rizzo, like it isn't just El Salvador. It is... Uruguay, El Salvador, mm. Guatemala. But does you find it odd that the. But bear, that bear the okay. What I'm saying is, is that I think we're perhaps in a bootstrap mode. Mm. And then eventually we start to get to a critical mass where people are starting to settle. I, I did not see a country adopting Bitcoin as legal tender as early as we did. Sure. It, it came as a surprise. But what if it, next year Saudi Arabia sells some of its oil in Bitcoin? And we, they start settling that in Bitcoin. What, what I'm saying is you can be completely right, but we 
we get to we get to monitor this in real time. We get to monitor monitor the 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 block block reward as well as the fees. And you know what? It might change. You you might be right. We might get to a point where it never has enough economic activity, and we have to plan for twenty one forty in a different way. Or it might be like so many people have moved onto this network; they are settling. We do have the economic activity, but we don't have to make the decision now for something that might be 20, 40 years. Right. Well, I'm not saying that we do have to make a decision now, and I'm not saying that we'll even have to make a decision in the interim or even in the the immediate future. Right. This is a problem that might we might never see the end of this. We might never live to see the conclusion of this. We probably won't. Right. (laughs) I think that's a that's a likely outcome. Right. Well, then fuck them. As long as Uh, we get rich. Sorry. As long as we get rich, fuck (laughs) them. Uh, Right. But I think that uh, yeah. I, again, I still think it's worth asking the question, especially at this time that we're leveling the criticism. And I think that what's very clear is that there is a divergence on some of these these things, right? So I think that you're correct. Is that you know it, there are plenty of people who think the fee market will continue to build. Great, it might, and we might need to uh, you know react to that when it happens. Great. But you know, equal, those are equally important conversations to have, right? Yeah. And the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate end of each of those assumptions is not this current um, kind of thinking where, you know, to me at least, there's not this current thinking of, you know, Bitcoin is inevitable. We don't have to do anything to ensure its continuance. We do. We act, we do, and we should. Uh, and so that's, I think, the the perspective that I think we've moved away from, and I think that it would be good to get back to. I mean, I think every conversation should be had. I think we should be aware of the questions we're asking and the answers we come to and the conclusions and the potential uh, uh, hypothesis of mm-hmm. how this is solved. And you can continue to adapt. It's not an issue now, but no. it could be in not four years, maybe 16, maybe 32. But we will be aware of it when it is an issue and probably likely ahead of time. Mm, well, it's not just fees, right? So it's also the attitude of building things on top of Bitcoin. That's a different right? point. So those but are I'm with you. those are kind of two separate things, right? So I think like if you're going to say that there's a few differences, like one is in the general attitude towards, uh, you know, just you know how well we're doing, and the second is like, well, you know, if you think that Bitcoin is just going to succeed without your action, why take any action, right? This is sort of the argument for the ossification of Bitcoin, right? Let's not let's not make any more changes to it. It's fine. It's working, uh, and let's just stop that building process, right? But obviously, I think that. You know, again, this this sort of gets the essential schism where you know how, and this is something that I'm asking a lot about lately, is uh, how compatible is the Austrian sound money theory with the digital cash outlook? Because they're they're different. <laughs> like yeah. the sound money thesis of the Austrians requires Bitcoin to just be what it is today, potentially as long as the network continues to operate under the assumptions. The digital cash model is very different. It assumes that we have fungibility. It assumes that we have anonymity. It assumes that we have you know, the tools to use Bitcoin in a way uh, that is free from sort of the capture of the state, right? That was something that was very much a concern of the cypherpunks who Satoshi built on. Um, so again, I think um, one of the things that, I, that I'm trying to assert through this model, again, is that we've leaned very, very heavily to this Austrian model. It seems that, you know, earlier we leaned heavily to this digital cash model. You know, again, look, you can say that Bitcoin users, we have the optionality to pick from these theories as we want. But right now, we're currently very much trending towards this Austrian model, right? And if that Austrian model is not correct, well, then we're going to have to default back to something else, right? There needs to be some other way forward. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder... It is your money, and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, 
then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. What does not correct mean? Are you talking about the implications of what an Austrian model is? Because what you can do is you can very much say a large part of the world is defined by the economic policies of major nations. Sure. Yeah. Expanding money supply the ability mm -hmm. to print as needed. Some would argue the Keynesian model allows for governments to uh, create a more stable society, uh, provide maybe more jobs, 
maybe help those more disadvantaged? Well, I'll give you an example of the Canadian truckers, right? So people are, I, I don't think Bitcoiners are very happy with the conclusion of what occurred there. Yeah. Right. We attempted to support a, a protest that we thought was meaningful and that, that, um, you know, illustrated our discontent with the state. And we tried to use Bitcoin to express that. That ultimately didn't work. And it worked because of the limitations of the network. They were ultimately the people who were using Bitcoin in that situation were unable to use it in an effective way to achieve what they were trying to do, which was to spend money without it being censored or stopped. And it was stopped. Well, I think it's more complicated than that. I think mm -hmm. it failed for two reasons. Uh, I think there was a centralized issue with the person who was raising the money to support the truckers, and mm -hmm. they ultimately became compromised. I'm still sure people could have got money in a more decentralized way. He became a, a central uh, point of risk. I think another reason it failed, which is an un uncomfortable conversation for Bitcoiners to have, is that within Canada, which is a democracy, mm. this protest was not popular. Mm. People, th people seem to think because... Because we thought it was popular. Because we thought it was yeah. popular. I mean, it fundamentally wasn't. There were a lot, a lot of people against uh, this protest. Mm -hmm. Whether they were peaceful or not is irrelevant. I know because we made a show. I know all the emails that came in and said, "I can't get to the, I can't get my mother to a hospital for an operation. Mm. I can't get my kids to school." All day, every day, all I'm hearing a horns beeping. Now, listen. Sometimes you require civil disobedience, and I fully understand that. But if this had had widespread 70, 80 percent support within Canada. I don't think it would have failed. I think you would have had more people on the streets supporting them. I sh you could have had an overthrow of the Trudeau government. Mm. But it was a minority, therefore they were able to do things like censor people and close down their bank accounts. And that's an uncomfortable conversation for Bitcoiners to have. Mm. Nobody wants to have it. Nobody wants to say that. Mm -hmm. For sure. So what your argument is what? That it was just unpopular? So it, well, no, it what I'm failed. saying is... I don't think it. I don't think the movement failed just because uh, Bitcoin wasn't able to support them in the way you said. Mm, you know, mm, right, right. I think it failed for multiple reasons as a, as a protest and a movement. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah, look, I mean, it's not. A, it's ultimately. <coughs> I think I'm not trying to suggest that like there's some different path forward that would have solved it. I'm just saying like clearly there's a community demand. To me, that represented community demand for the ability to use Bitcoin in a certain way. That just it didn't seem like you know the current network supports. But the reason I bring this up because it it brings a wider, more uncomfortable conversation is: Does everybody want to live on a Austrian hard money standard when they oh, understand yeah. the implications of that? Mm -hmm. uh, there is there's certainly within groups within Bitcoin who want to point at any ideas which are seen as socialist as bad, any collectivism as bad, any centralization is bad but some of the safest best places to live are western liberal democracies which have the ability for the government to tax and redistribute and also have the uh, ability to provide services for those who are the most uh, vulnerable in society now a hard money standard changes that we don't know the net the, the net out the, the net outlook for that we don't mm. know if that means we have a, a, a a different kind of uh, wealth distribution of haves and haves not, where the have nots rely on volunteers and, and donations and mm. support groups which aren't managed by the state. We don't know if people will want to do that job. I know some will. We don't know if it makes a different society where 
you have to protect yourself a bit more. You have to have weapons a bit more. We we just don't know the out, and we don't mm. know if people will want it. Some people are like, yeah, the state's shit, but I'm happy to pay some. Well, tax. I think one of the interesting uh, conversations that's happens lately, and I credit to Alex Gladstein for kind of bringing this up because I experienced this when I was in Lebanon, is that people are currently using you know stable coins as a humanitarian tool, right? That's an argument yep. that he made, uh, and obviously people are using alternative cryptocurrencies to run those stable coins, right? That does not exist on Bitcoin today. Yet what I found when I was there was a couple of things that I thought were interesting is that if you were a Bitcoiner in Lebanon right now, uh, you're effectively debanked, which means you need to be purchasing Tether in order to buy Bitcoin. You're effectively a Tether consumer because you're there. And some of the people there uh, just want to acquire Tether because they don't want the volatility of Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. I literally got into a car uh, attempting to sell Bitcoin to someone who would not accept my Bitcoin and was trying to, would, would, would not give me a dollars, would only give me Tether. Right. And he had a very high knowledge of Tether. He understood that it could operate on Ethereum or Tron. And he asked me that question. Right. So clearly there's some utility to what you're talking about. Right. Is this idea that, you know, maybe Bitcoin isn't going to encompass everything. Maybe some of these things could be built on top of Bitcoin. Right now they're not, but they're also seemingly integral to the Bitcoin economy. Right. Because you're asking people to onboard to the Bitcoin system through some other means. And I think it's interesting, right, that, that we've, we've, yeah, to me, it would be very hard to advance that conversation today. It feels like a climate in which trying to have the conversation that you're having, right, in which we might envision a future of leveraging Bitcoin as a platform in order to build other types of currencies, maybe state currencies on top of it, maybe things that look like Tether. Uh, while that is advantageous for certain use cases, I think that would be a very difficult conversation to have in publicly today. I think a lot of people would be very against <laughs> that conversation. I don't want that conversation, but there is a, there's a bigger reality to this is that... Uh, it was digital cash to begin with, mm. and it has been adopted by the Austrians, the Austrian economists who believe in this standard. Uh, there is a uh, there is a definite alignment between the Austrians and the libertarians. Mm. But Bitcoin is now universal; everyone's heard of it. You know, Tesla mm -hmm. has it on the balance sheet. Yeah, you know, we do have a country that's adopted it. It is in the public eye with every major story. Do we believe as Bitcoin expands that? Everybody coming into Bitcoin is going to suddenly become a libertarian. Or right. is it a case of we're going to have lefties come in, righties come in, moderates and centrists come in, and they're going to use Bitcoin or store Bitcoin or have it, but still want to live in a liberal Western democracy or in a democracy, and it's just an asset that sits, sits alongside it. Again, these are things we don't, we don't know. Mm. But uh, libertarianism isn't, it, it hasn't ever succeeded as a, uh, we don't have a libertarian country. Mm. That's not to say it couldn't happen, but we don't have it. And it isn't a popular uh, ideology for how to govern society. Mm. It's, it is still a fringe idea. I'm not saying it's a bad idea for anyone listening. I'm just saying it. none of the libertarian political groups has ever really gained a huge amount of ground. Well, I mean, look, I think that, uh, just to comment on that, I mean, I'm traditionally more kind of left-leaning, but I would say that, you know, modern libertarianism is, is, de libertarianism is definitely asserting itself in the United States right now, currently. And I think that we might be at the beginning stages of seeing a larger resurgence of that, right? Even the Bitcoin and politics, right? Uh, Bitcoin is becoming a lot bigger conversation in politics. Um, so, But is it, but is it, an, is it a form, because there are divergent camps in in the libertarian community. There are those who who do not believe in the state. And then there are those who believe that you have to have political parties. There is a libertarian party, Joe mm. Jordan. Joe, Joe Jordan said, yeah. She'll, yeah, she'll be a Bitcoin 2022. So. Yeah, it was what Nick Carter said. He said one of the issues with, with most libertarians is that it can only work if it acquires political capital, mm. but it's an ideology based on not acquiring political capital. <laughs> yeah. I've always said, I think libertarians 
who have a platform for smaller government should be involved in politics. Mm. And then rather than focusing on the end game of no state, just focus on wins, which is smaller state. Mm. You know, better use of money, lower taxation, more freedoms. Mm. Why is that such a bad thing? Why, why does it have to be no government, self-sovereign, citadels and guns? Why can't it mm. be just a better, a better state? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I certainly like the argument that I'm trying to advance is, has very little to do with politics. It's really just, you know, again, the Bitcoin network has to continue to sustain itself. <laughs> Whatever you want to use it for, yeah. Bitcoin needs to ensure that it continues to operate, right? And it does operate differently from these other cryptocurrency networks. Uh, but then, so again, just broadening it out to this perspective, right? We as humans are trying to achieve things. And we're trying to use technology. Bitcoin is a technology and has certain features, right? So I think that... Um, you know, and we do have a say in that, right? That is currently how Bitcoin is constructed, right? Every if you run a node, you are able to kind of make decisions and and make changes like on the network, right? So I think some of this will play out, and it'll be interesting to see see what happens, right? Uh, ultimately, I think that, you know, uh, who's to say in the future what will happen and whether Bitcoin will respond to that, and that response might include undoing a lot of the ideology that we're laying down today, right? I think that the only thing that I can really say. And looking back at Bitcoin narratives, as, as I said earlier, kind of as a joke, it's like, we know that Bitcoin is going up over time. Other than that, I'm not, I'm not really sure what we've learned at this point. It sounds to me like the, the, big, the bigger point here then is that we, we need less groupthink, more, more uncomfortable conversations. Well, I think that the, the idea that the, the contrarians in Bitcoin have, have sort of been kind of marginalized to the extent that they have, I think is, is, a, bit, is a bit alarming. Um, it totally happens. Yeah. We've witnessed it. I've witnessed it on other people. If you step out of what is the general consensus of ideas re relating to Bitcoin, altcoins, governance, politics, major global issues. Right, but that, there, there are contradictions here that just seem really large to me, right? So a good example would be like, if you think Tether is a humanitarian tool... But it's built on a shitcoin network. Then how do, network. how do those two things? How does in your mind how do those two ideas actually coexist? Because you're admitting that something has value, and you're totally discrediting the thing that enables it. So there's a lot of these examples where if you actually drill down into the specifics, uh, you start to just find kind of holes that just that really don't make any sense, just in, inconsistencies, right? Um, and, and I think that we just don't press on those enough. And they've some of them just the, the shitcoin one being the probably the biggest one, right? Is I, I think I have my own definition of that and why that is the case, but uh, why, why we use the word shitcoin. But again, I don't think we, you know, again, that's the, the modern Bitcoin maximalism is very much a binary construct, right? It's Bitcoin is the only decentralized cryptocurrency because it has a finite money supply and a fixed monetary policy. That is the definition, I think, of what a lot of people think decentralization is. The problem with that is the developers totally reject that definition. That is not a reasonable definition of decentralization because you cannot apply that definition to other networking technologies. <laughs> the internet is clearly decentralized, but it is not decentralized because it has a monetary policy. The, the internet has nothing to do with that. So I think you know this is kind of the thing where you know ideas and narratives can actually shape assumptions, and those assumptions can seep down into how we're building, right, and how we think about building. And this is the thing that I'm watching right now, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, that's really interesting. You have this creation of this idea that decentralization means this, and clearly it can't mean that. <laughs> like, clearly that can't be the actual definition, because it doesn't actually apply to anything else. But it's a useful, because we want to discredit all these other systems, 
We want to discredit them. And so it fits that binary, right? I think one of the things about early Bitcoin maximalism is that it was technically correct in how it described decentralization, but it was very difficult for people to understand. So it didn't scale well socially. Modern Bitcoin maximalism has scaled very well socially because it takes a very binary construct. If you're not Bitcoin, it's not decentralized, and it's a shitcoin. It's very easy for people to understand. But in actuality, you know, the developers who are working on Bitcoin, they do agree that decentralization is a spectrum. Though there are people working on alternative cryptocurrencies who do say that, there are Bitcoin developers who will admit that. Because in order to build things on top of Bitcoin, you need to build things that will be less decentralized. Well, within, within the developer community within Bitcoin, I, I am yet to meet a hardened Bitcoin maximalist, those people who are working on uh, Bitcoin Core. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they exist. But actually, you get some of the, the, mo the, the broader, more challenging conversations with them, the more open-minded right. conversations, the uh, understanding, appreciation of other cryptocurrencies, what are they doing, what can we learn from it? I, I, um, I tweeted this thing recently. I can't remember what the exact words were, but like, how did we get to this place now where because bitcoin maximalism isn't just monetary maximalism or platform maximalism mm. it is it's also got political dietary all of these other forms of maximalism right yeah and it's become a place whereby if you step out of that you can be attacked and i know this happens because so many people email me and say just want to discuss it here i'm not going to put it on twitter because they're mm. fed up with being shouted at memed insulted abused and like other people go oh, it's just people being mean on twitter yeah it's fine you know, we can all toughen up. It's still not fun. And in a cohort which celebrates liberty, censorship resistance, freedoms, to have such a, a, a cohort of groupthink that will try and destroy opinions that step outside of that, that's a contradiction. We should be celebrating open discussions. Well, I think American HODL's answer to that to me is that essentially, like, you know, if you consider Bitcoin's main invention to be scarcity, <laughs> because it is open source, it immediately was uninvented. <laughs> like, because you could essentially just copy Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin both invented something and uninvented it. And one of the only ways that we've found to actually enforce the scarcity of Bitcoin is through this social consensus. We, just, yeah, but we, that hasn't worked. That hasn't happened. I we think have more it's been a lot we more successful more than you think. Yeah. Honestly, we have more shitcoins than ever. We have more altcoins than ever. We have a, a reducing dominance, and nobody has ever changed their mind from being shouted at. It's like it's like having children. You don't you learn very quickly shouting and yelling at your children does fuck all. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The best way to parent is to lead by example, to show them, to give them skills and the ability to learn from their mistakes. It never, I've, I've got two kids. I still do it sometimes. I lose my shit and I, and I shout at them. Never works. Mm. I don't think anyone in the history or a very small amount in the history of Bitcoin have been shouted at uh, about altcoins and again, you know what, you well, shouted a, at me, just, you're just, right. Just a funny example though, just to talk about information uh, disparities. Uh, there are some altcoin communities that are larger Bitcoin holders than Michael Saylor and are far less celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I mean, again, these are things that we should. I, I think we should question a bit more. But um, yeah, again, trying to go back to this general thesis, I think that you know, Bitcoin really only needs to strive to some amount of economic viability. That's the one thing that we absolutely need above anything else. And I think the question then is, do these ideas and narratives help us get towards that? If they do, I think they're valuable. 
And then if they are moving us away from that, then I think they are less valuable. I think that would be how I would try to make a weighted judgment between these views. What about a different way to look at it? Is, is Bitcoin, maximi- Bitcoin maximalism itself fundamentally dead or should it actually be called off? Is it, is it even useful anymore? Well, again, I think that that you have to look at it through what the utility is, right? So today, the main differentiator between Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies is the monetary policy, right? And the finite supply and the fact that you as a minority user within Bitcoin are protected at a higher degree. So I think those are those are kind of the real three differences, right? And I think that rather than like making a strong arguments around those things and advancing and explaining those things, like that, that to me is a useful, that, that to me is useful, right? That is why I still consider myself in the Bitcoin maximalist camp, because I think it's worthwhile advancing those arguments and for us to continue to advance them. But I think too often we fall back on, again, the sort of idea where, you know, we need to um, be verbally dismissive or to be angry at people, right? For a good example would be one of the things that started me down this whole train of like trying to write this article was the defection of Udi Wirthermeyer, who I think has leveled a lot of criticism. He's articulated his criticism very poorly, like I think in, in public. He but, didn't used to. I actually, I, I, I think there's been like a, a like a yield curve on it. Mm-hmm. Like I, there was, the, we talked about this, didn't we? Mm-hmm. With, Lee, with Udi on the show? No, no, you and I were discussing oh, yeah. like... And sometimes I wonder with these characters, it, what what's the information we don't know in the background? Have they also made a bunch of money on altcoins and that's flipped their kind of like... That's that- such a weird thing. I, I mean, there's so many people in this space who like, you know, again, the, site, this, the, the purity test is... It's is not wrong. a purity test. No, no, you're missing my point here. What I'm saying is uh, Udi was great commentary, really good at challenging like ideas around mm. maximalism and, and it would make me rethink. What I'm saying is, there became a point where I think it went too far and it became, I think there was less thought and less ideas put into it. And, I, and what I'm saying is, has he also been like maybe been trading or made some money on them? And that's that's tw- like twisted his thinking. I, like I think, U- Udi critical of Bitcoin as a Bitcoin maximalist, I think super useful. It's, it was so useful, but something changed at one point and I'm a big fan of his. I think some of that changed because of the ridiculous pushback he got as well. I think, think it so? was a bit of a fuck you to the... Maybe. Well, how I interpret that is essentially, you know, how I've come to understand is I think Udi was an original Bitcoin maximalist. I think he believed in that Bitcoin maximalism, in order for Bitcoin to succeed and outcompete all these other currencies, you would optimize Bitcoin's platform capabilities. And then by doing that, you would assimilate these other features and these other markets. And I think what Udi saw was an environment where that conversation was no longer happening. And he saw in other alternative cryptocurrencies, those markets were forming. So I think what Udi saw was essentially, hey, I was here in 2016 when we were going to build all these side chains and we were going to take all these features and move it on Bitcoin. And we were going to outcompete these other alternative cryptocurrencies by unlocking Bitcoin's technical features. And I think what he saw is that an environment where no one was willing to discuss that. But I think to be fair, it's I think that what I was able to do is I don't think that Udi's reaction to that was was necessarily right. Because I do think that the definitions have changed and I think they have somewhat improved to some extent. Right. So you can kind of look at what Udi said and say, okay, he's correct, right? What we're doing now no longer matches this old definition. 
But I can't say if that's good or bad. I can only say that it doesn't match that vision. I think he began to think that that was bad, right? Because I think he was relying on a lot of these older assumptions of saying okay. like, okay, we need to bring this fees onto Bitcoin. We need to have fees be a certain level. We need to secure the blockchain in the future. And you guys are crazy. You're not, you're not even using this old model that I have in my head. So I'm not going to continue engaging with you, right? So, but I think that, that there was a legitimate criticism there saying, hey, we used to believe these things. Why are you guys no longer talking about it? He tried to raise that conversation, I don't think in a way that was very clearly verbally expressed. And the response that he found was a market in which that old ideology was no longer appealing to people. And I think that rebuff was kind of what pushed him out. Okay. Because to him, that earlier thinking was still valid. Because one of the other things that I'd mention is, is that this idea of platform maximalism, this idea that in order to become economically viable, blockchains need to behave in a certain way, that is still what the other cryptocurrencies that is how their economic model. They haven't inherited that. So what I find very interesting here is you kind of have these like two competing economic models. Bitcoin has again charted a very clear course where it's doing something very different than the other cryptocurrencies. And so I can't say whether one is good or bad. I, all I can say is that Bitcoin originally had this definition of how it was going to succeed. It no longer follows that. But all these other cryptocurrencies do, right? They view themselves as competing for transactions, trying to boost their fee market, and trying to ensure a future where their chains are economically viable. And ultimately, they assume an environment where all blockchains are competing for transactions. Bitcoin f now fundamentally rejects that. We no longer believe that Bitcoin has to compete in that way in the market. And that, and that has been a schism that I think, you know, we should ask ourselves why we made that decision. What are the underlying assumptions that led us down that course? Or did we even consciously go down that path? I don't know. Those are questions that I that I can't really even start to unpack right now. Huh. I mean, one of the things that we're talking about and thinking about is I'm starting to think, I mentioned to you, is like, should we move beyond Bitcoin maximalism? I'm already kind of thinking beyond that and I'll give you the, the reason why is growing audience, growing number of people coming in, growing awareness, like Bitcoin is now essentially mainstream. Do we need every person who comes into Bitcoin to be thinking about what maximalism is, block subsidies, like the thesis of where Bitcoin's going, or do, as we have hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of people come in, do they need to go, Bitcoin is money, if I hold it, it can't be debased, and I can store it on a wallet, and this protects me in certain instances, and I can send it around in a censorship-resistant way. Mm. Like, super simple understanding of what it is, and not worry about all this, because... Do we really want tens of millions of people arguing about this, or or, or are we pass well, that? Look, no, they have to, they, but they have to exist. in, <laughs> this is just sort of the front of house, back of house argument, right? It's like you give somebody a menu and they have to order food, and then the the kitchen has to deliver the food, right? Yeah. There has to be. Uh, so in this case, uh, you're correct that you know Bitcoin is at a level now where we've manufactured an argument that is cohesive and that that people are buying into. Uh -huh. Uh, but again, like that argument needs to have some relationship to the actual technology. So when I was here before, I made a joke that I never, uh, never elaborated on. But when I sat down, I said, "Oh, like people think that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. That that's ridiculous. Ha ha." And we never talked about it. But again, that's sort of narrative where it's like, "Is that true?" Like, I mean, well, it clearly hasn't worked out in the short term. That that's and it's clear in that in hyperinflation areas that Bitcoin is not even really you know, being widely used for that use case. So it's only an inflation hedge if it beats inflation for you. 
Right. So there's now the marketing department of Bitcoin and the backroom of developers are out of sync, right? The technology is, is operating in a way that the you know marketers at the front are not happy with. We've seen this play out in Bitcoin before, right? And the answer is that the marketing team is always disposable. <laughs> so uh, you know, because again, the technology the the technology only has to continue, right? Bitcoin's one bias is that it needs to continue, and ultimately, it needs to be economically viable into the future post subsidy. Everything else that you want to graft on Bitcoin is is your. Is, is you know might be our own human failings, and I and I just think that that's a message that I like to continue to, to to bring out because to me, you know, I see the amount of confidence that we have in these narratives. I see that that confidence brings speculation about the current system, fiat the, the fiat system, and it brings speculation about what's going on in the alternative cryptocurrency world. And I, there's a lot of things I think that come from that confidence that don't seem very accurate. I'm not I'm not sure there is. I think it's a I think it's a false confidence. I think it's a false confidence because people don't like it being questioned. Uh-huh. It, it just fundamentally don't. Or when you try and approach things, it's usually, up. Oh, we'll figure that out in the future. Which I know which I just did, but maybe it's a false confidence. Well, I think ultimately that, I w- that tendency I would explain is that pe- people who react that way tend to see Bitcoin as a pure for for free market economic system, and they just will reject any thing that is not a free market economic system. And they can't really make the argument that that's why they, they are pro-Bitcoin and not anything else. Uh, but that's, my, that's been my interpretation of that argument. What essentially they're saying is that the way that Bitcoin exists now, it you know, you really can't have a, a market, a, a, a currency that operates in an entirely free market, where anyone in the world can can do any position in this in this technology, where the barriers to entry are essentially you know unguarded, and we can only really have that once. That's what they're saying, I think, when they say that. But that's not the argument that we're making publicly. So if that is the argument that we believe, then maybe we should make that publicly. Are are we making that argument? I don't know. I, th- I hear a lot of people talking about inflation. I hear a lot of people talking about the instability of the U.S. dollar. I hear a lot of people talking about the global macro instability, which, like, great, but the, like, you know, I don't. I, who knows? Like, I mean, as you noted earlier, it's economics is not. To me, economics does not seem like an incredibly exact science. But it isn't. It's not. <laughs> it's entirely like so. It's schools yeah. of thought. And it's mm-hmm. it, and it's. We've seen what happens with gold standard we've seen now what's happened in a, a mmt keynesian model and mm-hmm. we're seeing the potential of what a bitcoin model is and maybe they're a b tests or maybe it's i just don't know if we've really choose. seen a lot about what a bitcoin standard would look like because again we are we are living in a way of where course. we're arbitraging both systems yeah we are unique within the spectrum of history and which and if, if you assume a future bitcoin standard we have the ability to make any transaction in a way that is advantageous for us. So again, going back to this idea that you can hold Bitcoin and save in Bitcoin and spend in fiat. You're like constant, everybody in Bitcoin is doing this. There is nobody I know in Bitcoin who is spending Bitcoin all the time. There's maybe one or two people in the world who are those weird case studies. Right, so you are now accepting an environment where you're actually using both systems to your economic advantage. And so this becomes a weird question because ultimately we cannot keep doing that <laughs> because Bitcoin will require that the network that supports the asset sees a certain amount of activity in order to ensure the continued operation of said asset. So but there it, needs but, to be some equilibrium there. But isn't this like a tra- transition of power? Think, uh, I think about when I got my first mobile phone, I still had a landline phone in my house mm. and I still use them. 
But over time, over time, I used my landline less and I used my mobile more. And then I got to a point where I never used the landline and have my mobile more. I don't even have a landline anymore. I get my uh, I get my um, internet service provider to plug in. I, there's a number, yeah. but I don't plug a phone in. I'm all on mobile. It, are we in that transitionary period? Like, yeah, quite we, possible. Yeah. yeah, we don't want to spend our Bitcoin because it can go up. But I do occasionally spend a bit. And maybe mm. over time, as more people accept or more people use Bitcoin, I start to spend it a bit more because maybe it's gone up so much in value, I've got a lot. Mm. And then that redistribution happens. And then maybe at some point, we don't just have a country that's on a, you know, has Bitcoin as legal tender. It's a country that only has Bitcoin. Mm. And that might be decades away. But is it just a transition of power? Yeah, I think the interesting about thing about that though is that even Bitcoiners acknowledge that they make economically advantageous decisions, uh, and so there could potentially be a future where, again, if Bitcoin fees are super high in the future, then you're assuming that someone, if you know that you are biased towards economically advantageous behavior, you have to be in a situation in the future where it's economically advantageous for you to use Bitcoin. There has to be some point at which that occurs. Or, or- not just economically advantageous, the just the friction is different. Like when I when I'm in El Zonte in El Salvador, mm. right? I don't spend my Bitcoin because it's economically advantageous. I can just get off the plane, get in my taxi, go there, and I know everyone accepts it, and I've already got some on my wallet, so I don't mm. have to go to an ATM. I don't have to carry it. Mm. There's also scenarios where it's well, like I would argue in that situation that Bitcoin is economically advantageous because the utility of the network is supporting your ability to do that. But it's it's not really an economically advantageous position because ultimately, probably the majority of those transactions I've lost out economically. Oh, I see. Okay, right, right. Okay. You know, it's more of a, a friction thing. But then there's also other scenarios. It's like, hey, your Bitcoin's gone up so much in value, and it's it's not an economics decision. It's a time decision. It's like, mm. okay, I don't know how long I'm going to live for. I might die tomorrow. I might die in thirty years. But I've got this Bitcoin, and I can do some cool stuff with it. Like, fuck it, I'll spend a bit. Mm. Economically not advantageous, but it's life joy advantageous mm. experience advantageous we really mm. badly articulated that mm. life joy advantageous yeah like it, no, what i'm saying is it's like it, it's oh, what okay, i it's so what yeah, i said to okay, ck yeah. the, the the two scarce assets in mm. my life mm. are, well three mm. money broadly but mm. time and time and bitcoin mm-hmm. you know what's the what's the point in waking waiting two decades to spend your bitcoin when you might die in that period and you miss out on everything mm. oh, but you could go and have this Holiday of a lifetime. We did it. We did it. I've did it, done it with my kids. We've been on mm. a couple of holidays paid by Bitcoin. Mm. Those memories are amazing. You know, maybe it's like, okay, my Bitcoin's worth X, but I can have this house and we can live in this house as a family and it's a beautiful house and have a nice time. Like, I think, I don't think every decision is made on an economic basis. Yeah, there, I was at Unconfiscatable a couple of weeks ago and uh, this gentleman by the name of Ugly Old Goat got on him. stage. Did he have his thing and his... He had his goat mask on and he gave a 10 minute short speech on why it's okay for you to spend your Bitcoin that I don't know was greeted <laughs> with any real enthusiasm, but it was a fantastic speech and I applauded him for giving it. It was. But is, 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 is HODL, do people really use the HODL uh, idea as a way to teach people a lesson or is it propaganda to stop people spending because they want their Bitcoin to go up in value? I think people should spend their Bitcoin. Well, again, I mean, we need there needs to be <laughs> there needs to be transactions on Bitcoin in order for it to continue, right? So the so I did approach the ugly old goat guy thereafter, and we had an interesting conversation where he assumed that you would issue paper notes on Bitcoin in the future, and I was like, well, why would you do that? Because that's bad for the network. It's actually not adding any, any value. If I give you a cash bill that's redeemable for Bitcoin, there's no network activity on that. And again, ultimately, we need to reach a state where Bitcoin needs to function. 
So just to bring it full circle, it's we need to get to this point where Bitcoin is economically viable and will continue. So maybe before we're leveraging criticism against the state and its system, we should maybe, focus inward. Maybe we're just so super early. Yeah, maybe what is it? 0. What did he say? Zero point zero zero one percent of people in the world have Bitcoin. But maybe when we get to like ten percent, there is a massive load of economic activity. Maybe if we have oil tr contracts priced in Bitcoin, we start to have that sort of. Maybe it's coming. Perhaps, yeah. Maybe it's about adapting. Well, I think some people are arguing that it's a self-correcting problem, right? So I think uh, Adam Back has said this, Safety and has said this, yeah. essentially said that, you know, look, we don't need to worry. This will just fix itself. And like, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's an interesting perspective. I mean, I would, I would hope that you're correct about that. If you are going to make the assertion that this will all work itself out, uh, you seem to be betting a lot on that. You're... <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what I take from this, Rizzo? I take more from more from this that the the idea that we should question more, discuss more, debate more, have uncomfortable conversations, rather than the specifics of the conversation we've had with regards mm. to. You know, well, I think I would like you to take away a couple a couple things. It's one that Bitcoin does have this thing that it needs to achieve, regardless of your opinions about it, and yeah. it does need to reach the state in which it is economically viable for the network to continue. It has. It seemingly uh -huh, has to reach that point. That's and the definition of that, I think, is unclear to me. There's people. People have a broad, diverse range of opinions on on what that future state looks like. Um, but I think if you walk that back, there are also meaningful divergences in some other important things about how the network will evolve. And I think that you know, if there's anything that can be taken away, uh, you know, from this conversation again, is that uh, you know. Our approach to maximalism has changed. It likely will change. Uh, I gave an example of how we used to think about Bitcoin maximalism. We clearly have established that that's not a rational viewpoint. Nobody believes that currently anymore. We've moved to this new model. And we may find that there are issues with this new model, just as we found there are issues with this old model. Because we might be moving through a history where we are simply building models and iterating them over time. And it might be that our narratives that we're saying now no longer fit this future model. And that also should be okay, but we need to be able to divorce ourselves from those narratives and learn when they are no longer useful. And so I think the other thing that I would like to point out is that, again, the association between Bitcoin and narratives is not absolute. Bitcoin does not want or need narratives. It only needs to ensure that its incentives are aligned to continue. Hmm. I feel like this is a, an interview where Jeremy's sitting there with a question to ask. Yeah, it's going back a minute, but... If um, if if there is the potential to build more on mm. Bitcoin as a platform, um, is there the potential where the there's more economic activity coming from um, basically the opcode section where you're able mm. to build in second layer functionality than from UTXOs being passed around? Yeah, I think this is interesting because we don't really know, right? So Lightning has alleviated fee demand. Like, right, fee demand was higher prior to Lightning. And Lightning, one of the interesting things about it is while we often describe it as a payment network, it actually is, you can also describe it as a fee arbitrage system. You can just delay settlement. And the question is, like, if Lightning delays settlement, well, how long can you delay settlement? Can you just settle it, delay settlement indefinitely? So in this future state, post-2140 Bitcoin, right, let's just lose that as a lens, if you live in a world where you can delay settlement indefinitely, you never like you never settle on the Bitcoin blockchain ever. Well, then you still the Bitcoin blockchain still needs to be economically viable. 
So now we're just creating a system where you never interact with this <laughs> this thing that needs to have your interaction. Like there needs somebody needs to settle there eventually. You know, I don't know. These are these are questions that as we build these systems, these questions are going to get more complicated uh, because we don't know, right? We think that building things on top of Bitcoin will add fee demand, but that might be an assumption that turns out not to be true. So you know, you can only with Bitcoin we can only continue to make assumptions and then continue to gather data and then move forward. Um, I think the problem with that is that you know that that process leads itself to, to narrative building, and narrative building is only good at giving you direction, but sometimes you have to change direction, right? So I don't know. I think we might be at one of these inflection points with our attitude towards stablecoins because I think it's the humanitarian case for them is very clear. It's clear that they exist on these other networks and have existed for some period of time. But again, I would say like if you accept those two things. You think I would think also would acknowledge that having a conversation in which we were talking about building that back on Bitcoin would be very painful, and there would be a lot of people who would not want to have that conversation. So those people who don't want to have that conversation, what's their alternative? You want people using Tron in Africa to store their U.S. dollars? That's the world that you want them to live in. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to have to make we have to make choices. We have to make directions, and and again, narratives are something that can force you away from that. And I think with this idea that we're we're venerating the asset, Bitcoin the asset. All I'm trying to say is that Bitcoin is an asset and a network. It has to be both those things. It is both those things. And so all we've done a lot to evangelize for the asset, and that's been very good. We've learned a lot about the asset, but you know maybe we need to move away from that. Maybe we need to move to deprioritize thinking about the asset. Maybe it isn't going to be just you know hey, there's 21 million of these things. You should buy them. Maybe we will have to create systems of utility around that asset, such that more people will use it. So, for those listening, Jeremy's our camera guy. He's always here, and uh, sometimes he has a question he wants to ask, and he asks it when the interview's over. But I just I knew with this one you'd be sitting there with something in your mind, and uh, I wanted him to ask it. Uh, is there anything I've not asked you that you wish I had? Uh, my name is Pete Rizzo. I am editor of Bitcoin Magazine and, and Kraken. Uh, you know, usually I think when you start an interview, it's it's nice to have an introduction. So nice, nice to meet you in the audience. Uh, if, I'm, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. Uh, if you would like a deeper explanation of the work, you can go to uh, Forbes, where the article will be. Uh, it's entitled "A Subtle Divergence in the Vision for Bitcoin's Future." Uh, it's meant to give uh, a framework for you to potentially ask some of these questions about how Bitcoin will evolve that you may or may not find useful or valuable. I, I don't think you need an intro these days. Okay. That's why I That's didn't good. do it. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that uh, these are my favorite types of conversations. The more uncomfortable they are, the more difficult the questions are, the more I want to have them. I, I love the work you do. You know that. I've told you that. Uh, you have an open invite on this show to come on whenever you want and talk about these difficult subjects. Uh, I want to have it. And, and I don't give a fuck if YouTube blows up and people are losing their shit. These are the conversations we should be having and we should have more of them. Mm. You can't just cheerlead. So uh, keep doing it. Keep crushing it, man. Uh, love Thanks, it. sir. Peace out. Let's go and watch some football. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 